Dearest listener, I'm afraid I cannot stay here any longer. I'm going to follow Captain Mal into the space between seasons. It has to be now, before the door becomes too thin, scraping stops and it breaks away completely. When they open the door, I can see it. The static. The place between seasons. I don't know what's in the static, but it's loud. And sometimes I can smell turnips. There's no way of knowing how long I've been here. But it wasn't hard to figure out. And being held in the podcast I mentioned. A place in between time. Sometimes, during the long dark, between the episodes, I can hear the celebrities crying in their rooms. They get sent here sometimes, when they're too old to act, or too pregnant to wrestle. Legend has it, there's a man who came in voluntarily. I've never seen him, but they say he did so much DMT he just lost his reality. We just couldn't find it. So he came here. I guess he decided to stay. The long dark is hard. The episodes are worse. I can feel them speaking through me when the screens light up. And it hurts me to keep seeing Chase grow weaker and older in this place. When they give me the notes, I can tell that days or sometimes even weeks have passed for you. The news stories and the references. I feel like we're skipping across the surface of time, but never submerging. The only thing that lets me know I still exist is the scraping at the door. As long as I've been here, that bitch Kim Kardashian has never once stopped trying to get in, and I don't know what she wants with me. Jessica! Memories appear from the future while I'm sleeping, and I can feel time folding over itself, and the door is so thin now, and I'm tired. I don't know what's real or when I am. I wish I could remember my name, but I keep trying to hold on to better days. Donald Trump was the president of America. COVID-19 ravaged the globe. And Morrissey had just released his 72nd studio album. Who would have thought it learned to long for it? To want that time back? To even want to remember? But I'm trying. I'm trying to remember. I remember going to the beach and just watching the jantalines run free across the ice on a warm Pentember maze. But I can feel you, listener, connecting me to home, where time is linear and I eat all the females from the tree in the backyard, and I can tell that you are of great comfort to chase, too. He'll be here soon. The guards bring him in when the screens light up. He hasn't been the same since they gave him that shot. They said it was a vaccine, but he's different now. And I... The screens are on. I have to go. Wish me luck, listener. I don't know when you'll hear from us again, but... You're very welcome back to Pontification, you lovely listeners who have been so enthralled and entranced up to now. Tis the season. One finale. 
Though I would still be thrilled to hear from you during the break if you wanted to send any thoughts or ideas or feedback in to pontification at gmail.com. Maybe tell us a secret. Maybe tell us that the sound of our silky, smooth voices has become the only thing that can get you off and you want us to pay for some kind of experimental psychosexual therapy to fix it and get you back to a place where you just accidentally picture your nan and her nighty in the middle of an otherwise normal wank. Or, if you prefer, you can just sit in quiet gratitude for having been here with us to learn, let's be honest, some pretty useless stuff. But by gosh, will you seem interesting when pubs open again and banter is once again a part of your life. Tell them that you read it in a book. Actually, don't. No, tell them that you've subscribed to our show and they should do the same. Poncification. Tell your friends. Oh, there's just so much to... Oh my God. Um, First of all, Kim Kardashian, she's just knocking because she wants her test results back. (laughs) I, I just assumed that's, that she wanted one. to guest. Oh, hold on, I've got more here. Oh. Secondly, the vaccine is not what made me this way. <laughs> Prolonged trap in the podcast dimension with you here, Emma, has brought me to this. You can't see it, listeners, but I'm waving hands in front of my face you? to show just what's wrong with me. I remember when your the- hands worked normally. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners don't though. For all, they don't know that I have hands. Actually, now that I oh, think we have that. no proof of that. It's like Judge Judy. No one knows whether she has legs. <laughs> so, so, finale time, right? Ah! Oh, hang on, hang on. And that's how you know it's a special. It is a special. What are you drinking, Emma? What what imbibements are you partaking in? Oh, don't make me admit that on a podcast. (laughs) I'm drinking strawberry cider. Like a real man does. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm drinking fridge wine. uh, Fridge wine? You mean white wine? It's white wine, but I can't give an exact date of when it went into my fridge. So at this point, (laughs) I'm just referring to it as fridge wine. It's like the mystery gravy out of the freezer. Could be the good Christmas gravy, could be some other more experimental gravy. I often find out it's a stool sample I forgot to draw off. <laughs> so And that's how you ruin a roast. I'm drinking frid- <laughs> and it was her birthday too. So because I'm drinking the fridge wine, you can tell I'm low on money. Are you ready to get some money for the last time this season? Oh, I'm not ready for it to be the last time, but you know I'm always ready to get imaginary paid. We're getting real paid. Stop really it. real paid, clearly, in this dimension and all of the others. You're ruining the whimsy. The whimsy. Poncification is brought to you by the fifth page of Google. What are you doing here? You've spelled something wrong, haven't you? Go get an adult. You clearly need the help. The fifth page of Google. Go away. Sorry, what's happening here? I do need an adult, to be fair. I was just wondering why you just pointed the camera at your crotch on air. I was like, what's going on? I needed to grab something that was behind my laptop. And I had hoped that you would be reading and therefore distracted from my crotch. But no, I've been exposed. 
by myself. <laughs> you know, it's normally customary to at least wear underwear on a Zoom call. <laughs> How do you know? I'm like Judge Judy. Well, you aren't anymore. The mystery is gone. Pontification is brought to you by The Bare Minimum. Have you ever been tricked into a familial obligation or forced to help a friend move apartments? You need The Bare Minimum. Only The Bare Minimum allows you to fulfil your obligations to others without overexerting your precious and scarce life energies. Have to lift a box? Say it's too heavy and pick up a smaller one. Have to give someone a ride to the airport? Offer them money to take a cab. The Bare Minimum. <laughs> the only thing I accomplish annually without fail. Very good. I, I relate to that. I did actually, someone thanked me for something today and I said, sure, it's the least I could do. And they didn't say anything. They just nodded. Yeah, as in that's so, the least I could yeah. do. Yeah, like yeah, I could have driven agree. past yeah. you and put up my middle finger. That's actually the least I could have done. I mean, what they thanked me for was actually a nice card. So I think the nod oh, yeah. was, yeah, I think the nod was unnecessary. That's as good as you can get from stoic Irish people. Pontification is brought to you by Not Your Order. Are you becoming more and more nostalgic for sit-down meals at restaurants? Well, look no further because Not Your Order is here. For the low, low price of 10 euro per day, our highly trained and well-dressed waitstaff will walk past you as you serve your dinner to let you know that it is Not Your Order. Buy now and receive a two-week supply off after dinner mints that arrive with your bill. Not Your Order. You'll buy anything, won't you, middle class? <laughs> and finally Pontification is brought to you by your free-spirited relationship experiment You felt so freed by them They introduced you to vinyl to burning essential oils and to Reiki They like to talk with you about the universe about meaning and existence They showed you a new way of looking at the world that wasn't just money and jobs and structures It was a new way of living your life and you loved every bit of it But now it's three months on and your free-spirited partner is currently having a dance battle with a crack addict outside the McDonald's bathroom at 3am and you've got work at 7. Your free-spirited relationship experiment. Learn your lesson or be doomed to smell like patchouli for years to come. That, that feels a little pointed given that you knew my husband before you knew me. I was good friends with your husband before I knew you. Yeah. And... Uh, he was my free-spirited relationship experience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, same, but I'm good at this. Yeah, true. Um, so, should I tell the listeners what we're doing today, or would you like to tell them, Emma? Um, let's, let's share. So today we're going to... Take it, Chase! <laughs> <laughs> Caught. Today we're doing a fun little game, which is that we've each written five little stories, uh, some of which are true, some of which are not, and we're going to, at the end, try and guess which ones were real or fake, mm. which uh, could be troubling, uh, because we're both really good liars, actually, and can't trust us for shit. Um, so, As proven we... by the past, what, 16 episodes? It's all yeah, bullshit. 15. There is no bullshit. Margaret Lovett. <laughs> yeah, that's the fun game at home the listeners can play is to guess which ones of the podcast are real or not. Uh, should we rock, paper, scissors and see who goes first? Oh, okay, great. Wait, is there a One. delay here? Okay, let's just yeah, do it. Fuck it. One, One, two, two three. three. Oh, I win. Scissors. You won. You won. You're going first. Winner. 
gonna be honest, I just wanted to put my fingers up to, at you. I know, I know this by the way you were holding up your fingers at me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. I'm so happy. Right, um, I assume that you're already familiar with the Mars rover and the new Mars rover and all of that stuff, right? It used to be the Marathon rover, didn't it? <laughs> no. No, okay. Okay. But you know about the Mars rover, obviously. Like, everybody knows about the Mars rover. Yeah. Do you know that there is also a Sun rover on the Sun? Because, mm. you know... We can go to the sun now. Who's going to tell us not to? Uh-huh. <clears throat> right. The, don't look at me like I'm lying. The Parker Solar Probe, or PSP, if you prefer, is a little spacecraft roughly the size of a car, which NASA sent all the way to the sun in order to learn more about solar flares and their potential ability to wipe out a whole continent worth of electricity and or communication infrastructure. So, as you can imagine, that would be totally disastrous. But it will be made significantly less disastrous if we're able to accurately predict it. Now this marvellous little piece of tech was designed and built by a team at John Hopkins University. As I said, it's around the size of a car, but it is jam-packed with science. Not going to pretend I know science yet again, but its primary function is to observe solar winds and assess the dynamics and the magnetism of the sun, and to send information back to Earth in the form of radio signals. So at the front, the part that's looking into the sun, it's, it's like a big flat face full of various sensors, which the solar winds then blow into. And then there's a heat shield, which is incredibly important, because that big sensor face is being subjected to temperatures of up to 1,300 degrees Celsius, but all the spacecraft's key systems and instruments are in the mid-body, right in the sweet spot under that heat shield. So they're actually operating at roughly 30 degrees Celsius, which is pretty fucking impressive. A fine Once, place for a holiday. That's perfect. Exactly. Just it's sit in the like 30 a lovely zone day. And be like, Just chilling on the sun rover. Or the, sorry, yeah. the PSP. It's not a rover. It's not touching the sun. <laughs> Cans Which, in the Mars rover, sounds great. Exactly, yeah. That's what's interesting about it, though. It's obviously not touching the sun. It's the sun. It will melt everything, you know. Yeah, um, okay. But at the closest point of its orbit, it's roughly 7 million kilometers from the center of the sun. I know that sounds like a lot, so let's put it in context. We are around 150 million kilometers away from the center of the sun, and Mercury, the innermost planet of our solar system, is around 70 million kilometers from the center of the sun. So getting within 7 million kilometers, that's incredible. That's amazing. That's some like science faction crazy crazy. That's almost like the same distance of the self-checkout queue at 5 to 10 p.m. in Tesco. Because <laughs> that queue is always like a million miles long at that exact moment. Oh yeah. All of the humans, yeah. Okay, I, I have opinions, I have questions. So, okay, my first question was going to be, is it on the sun? And you've answered that pretty clearly. It isn't. Because mm. that would have led to it being a little bit incredulous. So I mean, I'm glad you thought of things, that one. Things don't go on the sun, but it is inside the low corona of the sun. Oh, lovely. Do yeah. they expect it to come back? I don't think so. I, I'm yeah, not sure. 
Okay. What okay. I know is it's it launched two years ago. <clears throat> they expect it's got five years left of like doing its thing, and that okay. it's it's on like a wide uh, like an oval shaped orbit. I don't remember the right word, but like an oval shaped orbit because if it an stays egg an egg bit, that's the one. And if it stays too close to the sun for too long, the radiation uh, is going to fuck up the electronics. Uh, well, as, as it might do for some reason, yeah. As if it wasn't to research exactly that sort of effect happening right? anyway. Right, yeah. Okay, okay. I'll, uh, I'll ponder on that one. And perhaps I'll it maybe I'll tell you a story of my own. Okay. <gasps> it's not my own, actually. It could be my own. It might not be my own. Who knows? I'm going to... You never asked me my name, and I was saving the best one for the last episode. <laughs> I'm going to leave this in and not edit it at all. <laughs> it's Nace Chova. Ah, for fuck's sake. Yay! <laughs> How is that the best one? Fuck I've been sake. saving so it since, time. like, episode one, which was you never mean, released. When I said it... When I said that on air in the middle of a conversation, did you? Yes, that, I brought that. that up. I'm sure came later. I think that was when I taught you what a spoonerism was. You didn't teach me what a spoonerism is. My uncle I Sean, just gave you, I, also known as Mon, taught me what that. a spoonerism is. Okay, fair enough. Can I tell you a story? Oh, go on. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you of Legara Nacional Gelatinosa. This already sounds like bullshit. You think so? In 1987, the Prime Minister of Italy, Bettino Craxi, was called to attend an athletic event in San Siro, officially known as Stadio Giuseppe Miazza. His role was to give a brief speech welcoming everyone to the event, to the event, and then to speculate with enthusiasm once the event was underway. Unfortunately, what he didn't know was that his personal assistant at the time, Salvatore Florenza, or Florenza, sorry, had been the victim of local pranksters Giuseppe Santini and Giacomo Tredenzo. Santini and Tredenzo had at some point infiltrated the home of Florenza and edited his diary to include the event at a time when the Prime Minister had no other engagements. So they must have done this quite a bit of time in advance. Mm. And what they did was they penciled in the details of the event, dubbed Legara Nacional Gelatinosa, or the National Gelatinous Race. <laughs> of course... They just called it an athletic event with LGNG next to it. They included a contact number for Mr. Ingano, which is a pun because this is quite similar to the Italian word for trickery or for joking, which would be answered by either Mr. Santini or Tredenza, or if they were unavailable, would divert to a very official sounding answering machine, informing them that Mr. Ingano was currently away on important athletic ambassadorial business. Over the course of the next five months between the break-in and Legara Nacional Gelatinosa, no less than five phone calls took place between the pranksters and the Prime Minister's assistant. The Prime Minister arrived to a completely empty stadium, save for Giuseppe holding a fan sign from the stands and Giacomo with a starter pistol and in uniform and 17 marshmallows lined up at the starting line, <laughs> awaiting their signal to begin racing. Like normal size marshmallows? Oh, like, yeah, tiny wee marshmallows. Well, it didn't give me a size. They could have been the small ones you get for hot chocolate, or they could have been the big ones, I don't know. But they weren't, like, gigantic novelty marshmallows. No, no, no. they okay. were just wee little, like, little right. marshmallows. Um, <clears throat> 
The Prime Minister initially chuckled at the absurdity of his surroundings, but security and police were dispatched almost immediately to apprehend the two pranksters. They were caught quickly, but luckily only a fine was issued, seeing as Mr. Craxy was a decent sport, apparently. Though a formal inquiry was made into the home security of his assistant, Mr. Forenza. However, at the court hearing, Giuseppe's fan sign, 17 marshmallows, and a tiny finish line were all presented in evidence, which led to uproarious laughter from the jury. <laughs> That's great fun. Have you any questions of editor? No. I think I, I, think I know enough to make my judgment. Okay. okay. I hope. By all means. We'll see. Mm-hmm. I like how your only question was, what size are the marshmallows? Because if they're too I big, think this that's is important. Big. Yeah. <laughs> that's important to me because where, you know, where did they get those giant marshmallows? Apparently they didn't. They phoned it fucking in. <laughs> when I first heard of it, I was in college and I assumed gelatinosa was jelly, but apparently jelly in Italian just means marshmallow. I was unaware of this. Okay, that, that's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Um, right. Do you want my next one? By all means, tell me a story. Okay, great. Guess what predates civilization and marriage combined? Uh, atomic discombobulation? Maybe, but I was going to say dildos. Oh, yeah, cool. Dildos! Right. Archaeologists recently found a 28 thousand year old dildo in Germany and I want to talk about it so if you're a fundamentalist that's Christian that's not a nice way to refer to David Hasselhoff that's really <laughs> so if you're a fundamentalist Christian how did you get here why did you stay what are you doing here ne- yeah this isn't Go for away. you you're Go not home. welcome here yeah oh oh you know what? Yeah, no, you're right. Feck off. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about it, but we, we don't like your kind. Um, there you go. No, right. The fact that sex toys are nearly as old as sex itself is hardly shocking. Everyone likes to picture the modern sexual revolution of the 1960s and leave it at that, but let's be realistic. Progress is rarely ever linear, and humans have always had parts that feel funny when touched right. And we have been aware for a very long time that early humans were making what archaeologists and historians alike have been referring to as batons. Because, in the absence of any logical use or explanation for these tools that does not involve intimate insertion, they decided to keep it vague, just like they do with all of history's greatest roommates and friends. What is surprising, at least to me, is how sophisticated this ancient craft got in some parts of the world. Yeah, I'm talking about China. Where members of the Han Dynasty were buried with beautiful bronze strap-ons and jade butt plugs over 2,000 years ago. I, I think I smell a racism. Was, was that a racism? How is that racist? I don't know why, it just feels racist. The They're doing the nasty. They're having sex oh, I, it, with it just, strap-ons and such. It's enough of a grey area that I am uncomfortable. I revoke my pun. <laughs> <laughs> Is that... Thank do you. I have you, that you, power? <laughs> you rewoke your pun. <laughs> you know what? It turns out I didn't. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, should have re-upped the woke on that one. Anyway, 
So they were buried with beautiful bronze strap-ons and jade butt plugs over 2,000 years ago, which would be considered stunning boutique pieces today by anyone's standards. I'm talking about super intricate, high-end bespoke toys, which were lovingly polished by hand, and then buried with their owners, who expected that their spirits would live on within the tombs that held their bodies, and they would have to pack some essentials to have with them for eternity. And we should also talk about how very unsophisticated some other examples were, such as the bread dildos of ancient Greece. You heard me. Bread dildos. And I always this... thought they were called French baguettes. <laughs> this instant yeast infection was basically an overcooked <sighs> baguette. <laughs> which apparently came about pretty much immediately after the invention of bread itself. So, you didn't see this, but Emma, when she said this instant yeast infection, just pointed down. <laughs> You're not allowed to lie on a podcast. <laughs> Cancel the episode. Get rid of it. <laughs> <clears throat> sorry, sorry, excuse me. I also sheed you, my apologies. Oh, I didn't even notice. So... The next time you want to say someone or something is the best since sliced bread, remember that there was actually some pretty good shit going on before we thought of slicing the bread. Oh. I have thoughts about that. I have read stories about Cleopatra having uh, vibrators that were filled with bees. That was a thing. With bees? I don't think so. But with beans? Yeah, like a rain stick? Kind of situation, I think. Oh, right. No, no, there were, there were ones with bees as well. Live bees. They would, live bees. They would capture them, insert them in the thing, and then it would... Now I think you're lying. Well, it doesn't matter. It's your story, so... It doesn't <laughs> oh, matter yeah. if I'm lying now. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It it's is. It's very interesting. It also... I'm sorry, I'm stuck on the live bees. You don't have working female genitalia, do you? Not working. It's It's... Kind of um, it's frozen, saving it for later. <laughs> oh, I hate that. <laughs> uh, would you like to hear a story? Ooh, is it a true story? It might be. Is Bruce Willis in it? No. Uh, then not really, to be honest. I <laughs> see so your diehard obsession is getting much, much worse. Oh my god, it's so bad. <laughs> He's a barefoot cop. You're welcome. You're welcome. I would like to tell you of the first ever zombie outbreak. Okay. Uh We are in Italy in 1494. Locals reported to the authorities that ghostly, disfigured, human-like creatures were wandering the streets of Naples. They reported that they appeared to be suffering similar symptoms to leprosy. However, lepers were usually beggars. Obviously, they weren't well, but they were fairly well collected from a cognitive perspective. Barring injuries to the mouth or tongue, they could speak and comprehend. However, these zombies were walking around and behaving very strangely. They would babble incoherently, walk into walls and other people, and they would get violent if approached. The authorities were at a complete loss as to what to do with them. Some were arrested and imprisoned, others simply left in the streets until they died. And a lot of people speculate that, not etymologically speaking, mind you, that this is the inspiration for a lot of the folk tales about what we would eventually come to know as zombies. In Europe, anyway, obviously there are stories of zombies throughout Southeast Asia where it's just a word for Sorry, spirits. Sorry, can I get you to or... go back for a second? What year did mm-hmm. this happen? 
1494 in Italy. Okay. Sorry for the interruption. Go on. Quite all right. I'm going to tell you what it actually was. What this actually was was a particularly gruesome outbreak of syphilis. (laughs) Oh, Italy. Now, at this time, they didn't have remedies to take care of it, and the side effects were less than ideal. Basically, it caused your face to rot off of your body. Lovely mental image, right? Mm -hmm. It's lovely. Isn't that lovely? One person described the disease as causing the flesh to fall from people's faces and led to death within a few months. The disease was also known to cause the complete destruction of the lips, others of the nose, and others of all their genitals. Yikes. As if the people with the disease weren't suffering enough, they lived for months screaming in pain as their flesh was eaten down to the bone. Basically, in 1494 Italy, it was quite common to see people walking down the streets with their faces falling off their exposed skulls until they finally dropped dead. Lovely. That's that's beautiful. It's thought that uh, Christopher Columbus brought this to the Native Americans on his voyage (laughs) from Italy aboard his ship. Okay, now I know that this one is not true, because if it were, you would have done it during our romance special. It's so beautiful! (laughs) I could weep! Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, because you'd be worried something might fall off your face. I'd be careful. Hang on, I don't have syphilis anymore. Or any less. Oh, Oh. oh, um. So I happen mm-hmm. to know, mm-hmm. um, that yes, what you've described is pretty consistent with the symptoms of severe extreme syphilis. What you might mm-hmm. not know is that around that time, one of the uh, I guess folk cures that went around Europe for syphilis was to boil your dick. <laughs> yeah, to dip. <laughs> okay. Your, your penis or your vulva, if you have one, into boiling fucking water. I have to admit, that's just one more place where the men have it slightly easier. Because if we dip a dick in, we can like keep our legs free. If you have to dip a vulva in, you've got to go whole hog. You've got to do a dive bomb. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like they would have figured it out. Are you familiar with the shiwi? Do you know what a shiwi is? I know what a shiwi is. Is there a cauldron with stirrups? <laughs> yes, but it's not for that. Oh, okay, grand. I thought yeah. so. I keep mine under the stairs. <laughs> Tell me another story before this gets too gross. Um. Oh, now I kind of want to choose a gross story, but actually, the next story I have is quite cute. Um. Now it's it's a short one because it's not an incredibly well documented thing, but it was too cute to omit. So here we go. A puppy was born in the U.S. this year. Her name is Skipper. She has six legs, and she is thriving. What you may not know is that Skipper is not the only recorded six-legged dog. I want to get this right, so bear with me. Jean-Jacques Régis de Combasseret. Yeah, I'm sticking with that. Uh Jean-Jacques Régis de Combasseret, who you might know as a Revolution-era French statesman or perhaps as one of the authors of the Napoleonic Code, had a little dog named Tart. And at some point, Tart gave birth to a litter of puppies who, unfortunately, only one of her puppies survived. But against all of the odds, the one that survived was a pup who appeared to have not fully separated from its twin. Because it had the same situation going on as Skipper, it had... 
it was, from the waist down, clearly two dogs. With two pairs of back legs, two tails, and two working reproductive systems. But it had only one torso, including a single, normal pair of front legs. And it had only one head. And it started wearing a cape and fighting crime <laughs> with the title... With the name, Hermaphrodog. <laughs> Chase. Okay. The worst part is that you interrupted right when it gets cute. This is my favourite part. This is where it gets cute. They named her Lucky. Okay, they didn't. They named her Chance, which is French for luck. But, you know, still, I'm counting it. That's grand. Mm. (laughs) And apparently, she was said to be a fantastic guard dog. (laughs) Because she could run really, really fucking fast. (laughs) which I love but also because she was generally of a surly demeanour and not particularly friendly or playful unlike her mother now Sean sadly only lived to be five years old and then died due to complications arising from her unusual condition but you have to give credit where it's due five years is a ripe old age for 1.5 dogs to live to it's not bad that's um, that's uh, 35 in human years Give or take. Um, okay. First of all, could you say that Frenchman's name again? Jean-Jacques Régis de Combasere. Doing my best. Doing I know best. it's false name, because if you translate that to English, that's Jean-Jacob Jingleheimer. <laughs> it's absolutely I not. <laughs> I, I can't believe that. Also, Jean-Jacques like, Régis de Combasere. I've heard of your siblings being a pain in your ass, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, if it were that fucking painful, I'm sure they would have put her down. Is that insensitive yeah. to say? Well, they did Can say I be she rude was to a dog who's been dead for a long time? time? She was supposed to be very grumpy, yes. <laughs> but some I mean? like, dogs just are. Give her a break. Okay. She's a little miracle. I, I have a tough one with this because I know that Skipper is real. I've read about Skipper. I don't know about French dog. Um, I'll have to think about it. French dog? I take... A, yeah. I take offence to that. I consider her my pet in spirit after finding this out. Look, I'm just going to say, I think this fridge wine was laced with something cheap that doesn't agree with me and I'm <laughs> starting was... to see shit. Oh, but you're here to criticise the middle class people. My wine is laced with cheap. It's laced with cheap because it's been in my fridge for years. It's been exposed to all sorts of chemicals. <laughs> It's been exposed to, like, seven curries, at least. I mean, you should have screwed the lid back on a year ago. I didn't open it a year ago. It was closed, but I don't trust it. Well, then I think you're going to be fine. We'll see, Mama. I hope. (laughs) Can I tell you another story? Okay, but first, say stop the spread the way that you do. Flop the spread? I'm sorry, I was thinking about it this morning and I couldn't remember it and it just gets me. It tickles me. I ca- uh, oh, it's Flop the Spreed and Pave Knives. The Vogue of Martin Caxfeen. We were all in this, flew together. <laughs> How do you remember that? I have, it, honestly, it's muscle memory. It's just there. Fair enough. Can't go away. Yep. I had to okay. rehearse it a few times because I knew I'd get it wrong, but it was also spelt phonetically on my sheet, which made it a bit easier. <laughs> phonetically. Yeah, phonetically. Uh, Phone tickly? 
bone tickling. <clears throat> Chase! I would like to tell you about <clears throat> the only real-life Pokemon trainer. Bullshit. Sorry, that's not how this works. Go on. Uh-huh. With the North American release of Pokemon Red and Blue in 1996, the tidal wave of Pokemania had just begun. The cartoon TV series, the trading card name, oh, game, the movies, all started with the release of these two games. Currently, Pokemon Go actually still boasts around 146 million monthly users, despite its initial negative reception. But back in the 90s, this craze genuinely consumed the lives of many children. I remember trading cards in school and even kids coming up and asking if we had any free ones to give away, which I always did. Baby Socialist Chase was ready for it. But there was definitely one person who took this obsession a little bit too far. In the small town of Barryton, which is in Macosta County, Michigan, Daniel Lawrence Whitney received his copy of Pokemon Blue as a gift from his mother in 1998. He had been watching the TV series religiously for about a year, and when his grandfather got him a Game Boy, she knew he had to have the game. Daniel spent three months playing the game every day. He notably was caught asking to go to the toilet in school and then found half an hour later playing the game on the pot. Then he did it. Daniel completed the game. He traded with friends, battled his way through the Elite Four, and retired his Game Boy. And it was then that he started taking inspiration from the game and collecting Pokemon of his own. The Whitney's home was rather large, being in a relatively rural area of Michigan. And Daniel's mother bought the house off a relative who previously used the grounds to raise chickens and pigs. How he managed to get the raccoon, I will never know, says Daniel's mother, Rebecca. Daniel began small. He captured a couple of field mice using a contraption he made from a weighted shoe box and some string. He stored his Pokemon in the larger barn house at the end of the garden, walling off areas to keep predators separate from prey. After two weeks, Daniel had amassed three field mice, two opossums, a cat, a raccoon, and three separate large jars full of insects and spiders. Now, thankfully, he never engaged in Pokemon battling, but I imagine these creatures were fairly stressed anyway. Mm. Poor Rebecca, his mother, didn't discover the Pokemon Center in her back garden for three whole weeks until she decided to have the barn house roof re-shingled. When Harrison Wells, a local handyman, saw inside the barn and alerted Miss Whitley, she quickly went into the barn where she yelled at Daniel in disbelief before tripping and knocking over three large jars of insects and spiders. I was just in shock from the raccoons, said Becky. I didn't expect to be covered in spiders. (laughs) Daniel was grounded for a month and made to donate his allowance to a local animal rescue charity who assisted in releasing the captured Pokemon. Okay. Again, I'm going to get you to go back for a second. How long did he spend playing the game? The Pokemon, the Game Boy game? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Three months. Okay. Thus ends my cross-contamination. I'm sorry, cross-examination. Oh. What? I don't know, I just don't think we should be using that word after talking about syphilis and in the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) We shouldn't make puns, it's offensive. Oh, that would make a great next pandemic. (laughs) Oh, no. I'm ugly enough as it is. people have awful trouble with syphilis. I've heard that in the the nursing homes, they're rampant Mm. like rabbits. Yeah, seemingly, supposedly. Hopefully they're not made to, well, not made to fight, luckily. Like the rabbits in your story. <laughs> Go, Uncle Frank! That one, I, I gotta say. <laughs> chase. <laughs> That's three. Uh-huh. You've gotten three chases. I get, I get six either... the final, don't I? <laughs> you can either start behaving yourself, 
or start drinking enough for it to be a viable excuse. Eh. I, I ah. want the listeners to know that he's he's gone for the drinking. Oh, jeez. It's the finale. We're doing this. Give me a story. Do it right. I'm pumped on fridge <laughs> wine. <laughs> well, you know, at the risk of disappointing your buzz. Right. As I'm sure we can all imagine, finding things in the mountains that should not be in the mountains is basically bread and butter for County Wicklow Garty. But they did have a little surprise in July of 2013. No, in July of 2003, should have read it back before now, when one Ms. Grace Callahan called her local Garda station to say that she had discovered a tunnel which was easily large enough for an adult man to travel through while walking her dog. Suspect Mole people. Baseball, whatever. <gasps> Mole people. Hollow Earth! Mm. Mm. Grace described the tunnel as being obviously man-made and as having steps in it. So, mm-hmm. obviously, the guardie went out to check it out and sure enough, yeah. There was a big fucking hole in the ground in the middle of the Wicklow Mountains, which was indeed man-made and had apparently been covered over with a mixture of plastic camouflage netting and found foliage. Smart. (laughs) So, with the cooperation of the Dublin and Wicklow Mountain Rescue Team, a special investigations team went in, hoping not to find a whole pile of dead bodies. What they did find was a cave. Someone had not only dug a tunnel, but also dug a small cave roughly 10 feet beneath the ground. And not only only that, but said cave was reinforced with wooden beams on one side and the other side was being, I suppose, supported by a metal shelving rack. Now, The metal shelving rack was seemingly stocked up with what was described as provisions. These shelves were home to over a hundred litres of bottled water, several large hunting knives, a whole ass fucking machete, multiple items of clothing to fit men ranging in size from medium up to extra large, so we imagine multiple men, we can't be sure, an array of non-perishable foodstuffs, and my personal favourite, a tin of roses. Just a tin of roses. I love the idea of an array of non-perishable foodstuffs, and it's literally just like five (laughs) whole tins of spam. (laughs) Just spam. I don't know why. (laughs) A packet of Haribo Tang Fastics from 1982. I had some Tang Fastics today, and they were great. I fucking love Very fizzy. Love them. Angel great. Delight could be another one. Just loads Angel, of packets of Angel I don't Delight. know why, but when I read it, I, I visualised coca noodles. You know when you see them in the oh, shop yeah. and they're still in the cardboard and there's like a bale they of 24 They don't last forever, tubs. though. They Do don't they last forever, though. Mm. No, they have like, I think it's eight or nine year race on them. They don't last forever. Do I go. mean, that would have done up until 2012, I guess. Now, yeah, quite possibly. I'm mm-hmm. not entirely sure what else they found in there, but what they did not find is way more interesting. 
they never found the culprit. To this day, nobody knows who the Wicklow Mountain Prepper is, or why they, probably he, dug out a whole fucking cave, or indeed, what the cave was for. Can we be sure of he... I mean, there was a tin of roses. What? There was a tin of roses. Men always go for Capri's heroes. <laughs> the women go for roses, or milk Did... tray. Wait, men like milk tray? No, no, no. Women go for milk tray or roses. Men get the heroes. I was going to say, I like, feel like milk tray is for moms. Oh, wow. I've just realised I like celebrations, which just speaks to oh, the times we're in. Nestle, something wrong with you. I know, but only at Christmas. Yeah, even still. No, it's, it's a tricky one. Christmas. My husband and I have uh, overlapping boycotts, and so we've ruled out just a disturbing amount of Tesco. <laughs> so I, at Christmas, I, admit- I get Nestle. That seems fair. Sorry, is there more to this story before I cross it down? Oh, I'm done. Please, cross it down. Okay. Where, so this is the Wicklow Mountains? Yeah, I cannot be more specific. I don't know. Discovered by a woman walking a dog. A Grace Callahan. Grace Callahan. I mean, that's a bit of a coincidence because surely she would have found one of the bodies nearby first. So I'm I'm a little bit suspicious. I mean, I don't know. I'm going to tell you the truth. I've never been to the Wicklow Mountains. Oh, it's I don't really that's know why what's I, there. That's why I don't want a dog, because that's how you found a dead body. If you want to avoid finding a dead body, don't get a dog. Simple. I um, feel like there's tons of things that you could do with a dog other than finding dead bodies. But okay, Jason. drink wine and solve crimes. That's what I do with my dog. Um, well, we drink cider and solve crimes, but you know, we're happy. It's good. You, you drink cider and solve crosswords. <laughs> um, okay, I, as an interesting tidbit, I do know that the only nuclear bunker in Ireland, the official Ooh. one, is in Athlone. Sorry, it's official? Like, is it's it official. certified? It's for the Taoiseach. It was built during oh. the Cold War. Yeah, um, so it fits the Taoiseach. It's got like a... a it fits the Taoiseach. It is the exact size and shape of one Taoiseach. They have to edit it every year because Michal Martin is six inches shorter than Leah. Yeah, does a guy come along with a chisel every time we get a fatter Taoiseach? That's why they all have to sit in their office for so long so they can get a mould of their face to make sure it fits fine. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the official one is there and it's got like all the, the iodide tablets, uh, phone lines, and Athlone was picked because it's the centre of Ireland pretty much mm. and uh, it has the best radio frequencies for finding survivors and the like. Uh, but yeah. I'm I'm intrigued by this because I thought that was the only nuclear bunker in Ireland. I mean, I can't vouch that this is a nuclear bunker, but I know it's a cave. Oh, you just said it's it's not okay, so it's not built to survive nuclear fallout. Nobody knows what it's for. That's that's why I love it. It's just a cave full of shit. <laughs> Someone would investigate that and find out if it was lead lined, though. Surely. I again, I I don't know. Well, I'm going to tell you... You have as much information as I managed to find on this. Okay. I'm going to tell you about Fido Dogstievsky, or the exploding Russian dogs. Mm, Okay. After the Russian Civil War and the victory of the Soviets against the Whites, the Red Army had to reform and readapt to the ever-evolving combat of the early 20th century. Thus, in 1924... The Revolutionary Military Council of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics approved the introduction of dogs as military equipment within the Red Army. 
The plan was to use the dogs for a range of purposes, such as first aid, tracking mines, rapid communication, assisting in combat, transporting small amounts of supplies, dragging injured soldiers on sleds, and what we're going to be focusing on, the destruction of enemy targets. The newly formed Red Army lacked any kind of personnel to actually train the dogs to perform these tasks, so a campaign was started where anyone with dog training experience, such as circus performers and hunters, were recruited into the Red Army. Training took place at the newly founded training centre in the Moscow region, where German shepherds were the main target of the programme due to their ease of training. As stated before, one of the approved uses of the dog within the Red Army was the destruction of enemy targets. With tanks becoming such a problem for the Soviets, a mine vest was developed for dogs, and anti-tank dog units were officially included in the Workers' and Peasants' Red Army. Multiple prototypes of this mine vest were trialled, and the first prototype being detachable. The initial plan was for the dogs to run under the tanks, bite a release mechanism, which then left the bomb under the tank, and then they would return to the trainer. The bomb would then be detonated through a timer or a remote detonator. A group of dogs practiced this for six months, but the reports show that no dog could perform the task consistently, and thus a more extreme approach was taken to training. Amendments were made to the training, making it much simpler. The dogs were only taught to run under the tank. The new mine design was created, which would detonate as soon as the dog made it under an enemy tank, thus making the training of a return journey unnecessary. Each dog was fitted with a mine carried in two pouches, which could be adjusted depending on the dog. The mine had a safety pin, which had to be removed before the dog was deployed, something that would become a bit of a problem when this concept was put into practice. The first group of anti-tank dogs arrived at the front line around mid-1941. The group was made out of around 30 dogs and 40 trainers. The initial deployment highlighted some major problems with the program. In order to save resources, the dogs had been trained on tanks which stood still and didn't use their guns. When the dogs were deployed on the front lines, this created a problem as they refused to run under the tanks due to them not being, able, not being used to the sound of gunfire. The small minority of dogs who did try to perform the duty would be too scared to go into the enemy tank and would get shot by the machine gunner as a result. Another side effect of the dogs not being used to the gunfire on the front line was that they would run back to the trenches with live explosives still attached, leading them to kill several friendly Russian soldiers. This meant that many of the dogs who tried to return to the trainers had to be shot, leaving many of the trainers unwilling to continue with the program, criticising it for its brutality, which led to many of these trainers being sent to the gulag. The final nail in the coffin for the program came about when the dogs were deployed on a field where both Soviet and German tanks were present. Due to being trained with Soviet tanks... They gravitated towards the familiar-looking and smelling Soviet tanks instead of unfamiliar German tanks, leading to more friendly fire incidents as the dogs dove under friendly Soviet tanks detonating their charge. After 1942, the use of anti-tank dogs by the Red Army decreased as new and more humane roles were found for dogs, although training for this brutal job would continue until 1966 when the program officially ended with what the Kremlin referred to as limited success on the battlefield. And I feel like... Limited success is a bit of an, that's, an understatement. Yeah, that, that's an understatement. Um, okay, f- again, I have one question. Why, surely, out of the whole USSR, they could have found like a qualified zoologist or animal handler or dog trainer instead of some dude from the circus, right? Well, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily need a zoologist to train dogs. They wouldn't necessarily be good at that, would they? Okay. The whole well, point is the majority of them were drafted then. into the army. They, they needed people who were old and not, in, not being drafted, because everyone was being drafted. I mean, not everyone. I don't know. That's quite a lot of people. It just seems like a strange choice. Like, if you want the dogs to, you know, do a handstand while exploding, sure. 
But if you want them to do a great job in war, maybe don't just pick up a traveling fucking circus. There's, I don't know why, but there's just something so comedic about the idea that some guy with his dog is going out there like, I'm about to become a war hero. <laughs> and then he gets blown to bits by his own dog. Oh, I doubt they made him use his own dog, to be fair. Well, you, you, that's why a lot of them, that's what it said there, is that they, um, the dogs, if they were running back, you'd have to shoot them because they mm. were going to kill everyone around you. And that's what led to them saying, we're not going to do this. And they got sent to the gulag for desertion, basically. We're not going to participate in this program anymore. Okay, but again... These are not so like it's not someone's pet. Yeah, but these you'd grow have close to, to it, be dogs that were like you know bred and you, whatever. You for his would purpose. so grow close to it, though. I mean, you could you could tell me I have to teach a dog to to kill a member of my family, and I guarantee you, within two weeks, I'd still be giving it treats if it begged me. Like you just do, you <laughs> naturally pack bond, don't you? I mean, okay, fair enough. I'll take that. I I find it a bit sus. Okay. But you've you've won me over. Okay. Have you many more um, stories? I think I have another one. I do have another one. So. Are you story, sitting Emma? comfortably? Square on my body, yes I am. Then I'll begin. We've already done this. Yes, yeah, we, we're repeating a lot of gags today, actually. Are we? Bad for us. Um, be fine. Yeah. Okay. Can you give me a really quick boule boss for Christina Ferguson? Ooh, a jazzy boule boss. She deserves that, to be fair. Christina Ferguson gets a... Ugh. Not Ferguson. Christina Ferguson gets a boule boss because, in 2016, she did what we all would have done in her position. She got off her ass and she protested. Christina heard of a pro-Trump rally being organised in her town of residence, Amherst Junction, Wisconsin, and so she waited until the meeting was about half an hour in and everyone was seated. And then she kicked in the door, holding a jumbo jar of low-sodium, all-natural Jif peanut butter, the expensive stuff, and screaming about how much she hated Trump. Needless to say, Ferguson was quickly asked to leave, and to be fair to her, she did so without any real difficulty or disturbance. She just walked off into the night, cradling her family-sized peanut butter. But the attendees of what turned out to not be a Trump rally at all, but a meeting of a local environmental organisation whose beliefs actually aligned pretty well with Ferguson's own, were understandably a bit rattled by the whole thing. (laughs) So, they decided to send a couple of people outside to make sure that she was actually gone. And she wasn't. She was in the car park, smearing peanut butter onto 30 different cars. Some of which did not belong to folks at the meeting. Police questioned Christine about the incident, and she denied having left her apartment that night while repeatedly licking her fingers, the complaint stated. But when she was later identified by multiple members of the environmental organisation, she admitted to having spread peanut butter on the cars, and by way of explanation, she said that she was just fed up with the whole election process and embarrassed about her mistake. The cops said, 
Good job it wasn't crunchy peanut butter, or it might have scratched the paint. Okay. <clears throat> First of all, when was this? 2016. 2016, so it was after Trump had been elected in 2016. I imagine it was before Trump was elected in 2016. Okay, okay. And she didn't use crunchy peanut butter. She did not. She used smooth, low-sodium, all-natural Jif peanut butter. A family size. Okay. Okay. It's like a jar of peanut butter as big as your head, I assume, because America. Also, like, 30 cars. If it was just a small jar... 30 cars. So she'd have to just get, like, one finger scoop (laughs) rubbing on each one. Just a little bit. You'd do just the wipers in that case. Why do you just the wipers? The birds... Because then when they turn on the wipers... I don't know what time of year it was. Pre-November, clearly. Yeah. But it was also Wisconsin, where I'm given to understand wipers are important. They also eat butter burgers. I didn't want to know that. They're delicious. They, no, they'll don't. kill you, but they're really good. Have you been to Wisconsin? I have been to Wisconsin. Have you had a butter burger? I've had a butter burger. We're not friends anymore. When were we? Yesterday. My God, keep up. Oh, I was your friend? Jesus, you must have no friends. I treat all my friends this way. That's why I need you so badly. I thought so. May I tell you the last and final story of our pontification finale special? Is this it? Okay. This is the last one, I think, because you've done five and this is my fifth. It sounds right. Go on. I would like to tell you about Genghis Khan's furry babies. (laughs) Go on. In a Pat Mustard way? Not quite. Mm. Okay. We all know of Genghis Khan, the founder and first great Khan of the Mongol Empire. He's known for conquering almost all of Eurasia, reaching as far as Poland, and for his extreme cruelty and victory. Large-scale mm. massacres of adults and children were common after his victories. He's also known for adopting meritocracy and unifying the nomadic tribes of Northeast Asia, bringing the Silk Road under one cohesive political environment, and essentially creating what would later become the cultural link between all of Asia and Christian Europe. Of course, we also know him from his descendants. A 2003 study found that 35% of men in Asia had a specific Y chromosome pattern, one that was eventually linked to Genghis Khan, who had many sons. He also had many daughters, but they, of course, wouldn't carry the Y chromosome pattern, as you'd expect. After eight years of research in 2009, scientists revealed that it's estimated that one in 200 men on the planet are descended from Genghis Khan. So quite a lot, really. Unlikely me, like very much unlikely me because of where I am. But like when you think of how small England and Ireland are. I mean, I recently read that 1% of like all of the people on earth have some kind of Irish ancestry. It's unlikely. It it seems fucking dodge. It seems very, very dodge when you consider that about one in 2000 people are like, you know, considered... Irish or entitled to citizenship regardless whether they've claimed it or whatever they both seem really really high but I don't think there's twice as many of us as there are descendants of Genghis Khan I would believe Genghis Khan I could probably believe that just because of how far he stretched and like specifically where he was in Europe because they were breeding grounds Poland, Germany like they're the big sort of population centres so just to be clear in Ireland versus Genghis Khan we're rooting for Khan I'm not rooting for him I'm saying he won (laughs) 
That's all. <clears throat> What's even stranger, Genghis Khan had a soft side. He had a passion for animals and collected rabbits, specifically black rabbits. The story goes that he found an Amami rabbit. They're jet black rabbits. They're really, mm-hmm. really cute. Uh, they were nearing extinction in the last five years, and they've now mm-hmm. come back from extinction, which is really cool. I'm very familiar. Um, Need I remind you of the time when I had five house rabbits? <laughs> I don't know. I thought we called them Playboy bunnies. Chase. And that's four. <laughs> The story goes that he found an Amami rabbit uh, during his original tribal conquest in Japan. He kept the rabbit and collected a few others during this time and even had five dedicated soldiers to guard the rabbit enclosure, a post that that was considered the most honourable and for his most impressive of warriors. He later returned to Kamag Mongol, his birthplace, uh, where he left the rabbits with his then wives, sisters, Yesui and Yesijin, to look after what he left to lead his next military campaign of what would now be considered modern Turkey. Yesui and Yesujin successfully bred the rabbits for a number of years, even after Genghis Khan had ended their marriages. <clears throat> after eight years, there were estimated to be around 400 rabbits, and when their village was raided, all 400 of them escaped into the wild and, surprisingly, thrived. Due to their large stature and the consumption of rabbit flesh being particularly unfashionable at the time, the Amami rabbit became the dominant species of rabbit in the Mongol region within less than 40 years, some of them now growing to up to two and a half feet in length and 80 pounds in weight. That is until the Han Chinese Ming Dynasty, Dynasty, captured... Nasty. Or, uh, nasty. The Han Chinese Ming Dynasty captured the Mongol capital in the 1370s. Here, the Chinese soldiers were completely enamored with the Amami rabbits as they were so different to any of the rodent species they had seen in their native China. So they began capturing them and bringing them back, where they unfortunately did not make for great pets, as they were very much bred as wild animals in Kamak Mongol. So many were left in the streets or abandoned in wildlife, where they either met their end to many of the native species of snake in China. However, they were known to prey on the smaller rabbit species, which now leads many ecologists to estimate that the Amami rabbit's genes may be present in far more rabbit and indeed rodent species than we could ever have imagined. Mm -hmm. So I guess Genghis rubbed off on his rabbits. And they say you can't teach an old rabbit new tricks. Okay. Was there any, like, specific, you know, rabbit training for these five dudes guarding the rabbits? I mean, or were I they just presu- tough dudes? Presumably they had good aim, because they had to take out anything going to capture the rabbits and stop them from escaping, so they must have been skilled in some way. Mm-hmm. And they were guarding how many rabbits? At the time, around 40. In an enclosure. Well, like a pretty big enclosure. Is it covered? Does it have a roof? Do we know that? Is it indoors? I presumably it's indoors. I don't know whether it had a roof, but I'd say it must have done, right? Like, we imagine so. We're just applying logic to this. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know how far Hutch technology had developed in the 1310s. <laughs> you shouldn't the keep the Hutches, just, just for the record. Like, definitely don't. <laughs> um, are we okay. ready to, to do this or have you any more questions for me on that one no I'm happy enough with that one okay All right. shall is we it, commence is it quiz time it's quiz time okay <clears throat> let's, let's go back in the same order then let me shuffle okay. my notes a la oh shit what's her name Anne Thingy Anne Doyle who oh okay Anne Doyle you know you're from the, the news. news yeah you're one from the ah, news ah yes the one from the nudes, yes. 
Ew. Oh, Chase. You only Five. have one left. I've got a whole monologue to get through. This will be great. I mean, I think we've already established this earlier in the season, but we don't interrupt monologues in this house. <clears throat> exactly Unless what we, we do. want to. Okay. Exactly. So I think number one was Mission to the Sun. The, the PSP, right. the Parker Solar Probe. Yes. Do you reckon it's real? Um, I'm going to be honest, I was skeptical at first, but you did cover a lot of the bases. I'm going to say it's real. It's absolutely real. Hey. It's recent though, right? Uh, yeah, it launched in 2018, I think. If anyone is wondering, yeah. actually, there's a National Geographic documentary about this, which is very entertaining and idiot-friendly. It's also, it's very upsetting when you look at the first mission to the sun, which occurred in the 1980s, when scientists were unaware that if you just send the rocket at night, it's <laughs> still going to reach the sun. They thought they could like get it up Stop there at it. night and get away with it. It didn't work. No, they didn't. <laughs> lying time is uh, over, Chase. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Though, I had so much fun lying did, this week. Did I notice you adding some extra lies outside of your stories? What do you mean? I don't know. Some of your some of your interim facts seemed a bit sus. Though I think I might just be in that Chase's lying to me mindset. You're just sceptical, and you know, yeah. that's fine. You're allowed to be that way. So, what do we think about Legara National question, but go on. Gelatinosa? Okay, I think that's real. I think it's so stupid, it has to be real. It's entirely made up. Oh, very well done, you. Thank you. I Ooh. did, now in fairness, I peppered it very much. Bettino Craxi was the Prime Minister at the time. That was a real stadium. I told this to a friend to test it, and he informed me that the stadium I mentioned wasn't actually built until 1991. <laughs> And I was Sorry, like, is your is where friend Italian? Apart. No, like, he's a football fan. It was built for the uh, World Cup, Italian 90. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, I can see why you were instantly like, oh yeah, I'll get that one past Emma. Speaking of football fans, 1-0, one 1-0, nil, one 1-0. Nil, one nil, one nil. To who? 1-0. To me. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought that, you know, there was football happening. <laughs> like I'd know. Um, okay, so number two was Ancient Sex Toys. I buy that 100%. Absolutely. It could not be more real. Bread dildos, son. Bread dildos. Don't try <laughs> it at home. <laughs> Breadly. Um, the first zombie outbreak. I think that's real. I think it adds up. It's, it is real. Yeah. It's entirely real. Yeah. Um, as I did say, it is estimated that Columbus did bring it with him to the Native Americans from Italy on his ship. Good man, Columbus. Goes right along with everything else we already know about him. Yep. 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 Um, the six-legged dog. Ah, see, this is the thing. is I know Skipper's real. I don't know about Sean's. I'm, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to say real. Skipper is real. The rest oh, is entirely made up. Except for... Jean-Jacques Régis de Combacere actually was a revolution-era statesman and actually was one of the authors of Napoleonic Code. So give me some credit for that. Well played, well played. Mm -hmm. You peppered it just with enough truth. Yep. I'm very upset, though, because I was so sceptical and I just I went against my gut. I, I could see you. I could see you being like, none of this feels right. So upset. What did we learn today? No. Always follow your heart. 
You can get more pontification letters from our newsletter that costs ten ninety nine per month. What are pontification <laughs> letters? Like a capital oh, we send letters every few weeks. I've been sending out letters for money to uh, diehard fans. I'm a diehard fan. Fans, oh, oh, never exactly. mind. Not Sorry. to fans of us, just fans of diehard. Oh yeah, um, I don't want that. The real, yeah. the real life Pokemon trainer. Okay. You. Oh, this is this is the tricky one. I think. You, you think had me the one? until. What was the quote from his mom about the raccoon? It's very so early. The first, so the first time, um, it's the start of the article, and she says, how he managed to get the raccoon, I'll never know. And then later on, uh, she, when she went into the bar and then knocked over the jars, she said, I was just in shock from the raccoons, but I didn't expect to be covered in spiders. I don't know why, like, that quote from his mom, it feels too cartoonish. I don't think it's real. Also... I think the re-shingling of a barn roof... First of all, do barn roofs even have shingles? That doesn't sound right. Well, yeah, and it's no, all a bit coincidental-like. Okay, I, think it's, I think it's bullshit. It is bullshit. It's completely made up. Good for me. But I will tell you that Daniel Lawrence Whitney is the real name of comedian Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> and uh, Harrison Wells, the guy who... Uh, the local handyman is the name of the villain from season one of The Flash. <laughs> okay... <laughs> I feel like this has just become like sort of a masterclass in lying. It's, this is yeah, what we, we should be charging ten ninety nine for. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Look at you people getting it for free. The Wicklow Mountain Bunker. Oh, I'm saying false. Why? The Tin of Roses. What? Be, yeah, be because. Heroes. Because people from Wicklow hate roses, it is. It's totally false. I knew it was too coincidental, the Tin of Roses. I was like, bollocks, not a chance. What, what really gets me is... So I obviously like tested these on a couple of people, and both yeah. of them said, no, you can't set it in Wicklow, because Chase is from Dublin. So he's going to be like, I would have heard of that. I love that you're not like, I would have heard of it. No, it's a Tin of Roses that gets you. Okay, well, those two people clearly don't know that Dublin forget that everything else exists outside of Dublin most of the time. Like, it's just this entire ecosystem of its own. But I live here. Not in Dublin, you don't. Well, I live in the podcast dimension, but I mean I live in, you know, the world outside of Dublin. Exactly, yeah. So we're aware it's there, we just don't think of the goings-on. So, that's What's your number four? Um, That's three, two, right? Yeah. I'm up one. Okay, well, okay. you're up one, but you've also had one extra go at, so. Russian tank dogs. That's real. It's 100% real. It's yes. definitely Not real. A single. It just, it seems real, but it also seems kind of familiar. And I don't know why. You probably heard it somewhere, yeah. I mean, probably. Okay, my last one was the peanut butter lady. Woman protests wrong event. False. So real. Oh, motherfucker. I just assumed that it'd be someone right-wing. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. That's what I thought. I actually, I Damn originally it. wrote down the title as Trumper Woman. And I had to go back and correct myself because I just titled it on instinct. When you said protest, I thought you were going to tell the story about the woman that got arrested for uh, protesting Trump's like military cavalcade mm. by cycling next to him with her middle finger at his window. <laughs> And oh, then she got arrested props. for that, 
and then ran in the last house election and has got elected. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know her name? I can't remember. I'm sure if you Google it, it'll come up. It's very, very funny. Either like I'm instantly a fan of hers. I love her to bits. So, Genghis Khan's furry babies. It just feels weird saying it out loud. I don't just it, it doesn't sound right. I it's fake. It doesn't it doesn't add up. Why doesn't it add up? Because he got all these wild rabbits and then he had them in a pen and then they couldn't make pets out of them. It goes back and forth a lot. It just doesn't feel right. Okay, well I'm sorry to say it's 100% real. Oh. Oh, I'm that kidding. puts it's us completely in. made up. Ah, I just thought it was really I funny. I just you win. Well done. I win. Ha. Chase, you're a horrible liar. <laughs> that's a good thing, right? I'm pretty sure that's a good thing. I mean, I think it's a skill worth possessing. What if you get <laughs> interrogated by the CIA? I just won't say anything, then I don't have to lie. Oh. Look at you, taking it one step beyond. Oh, yes. Okay, we're at the end. The wine has been drunk. The Gaviscon is oh. near. Oh. It's time to say goodbye. But oh. I will say, we're, we're planning on coming back for like a four-part special, aren't we? I mean, I, I think so. Right, the current plan is to take a couple of weeks off, do a little bit of a season break special, maybe some mini episodes, and then, you know, to, to make a season two. We're going to do it again. Yeah. Well, we thought we might do like a, a, either a two-part or a four-part bigger story just to have mm. like one extra long version of the episode or something. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. We'll see where we're at. Uh, keep sending us emails. Pontification at gmail.com. Uh, I've been chasing over. start sending us emails, surely. We've got two already. And oh. this has been Nace Chova. Wait. Wait. You can't do that to me. Find that. This has Nova. been Chase's ma. <laughs> <laughs> Don't remember your mom's name. Fair play, yeah. Oh, Mama Chase will do. Mrs. Nova. Mrs. Nova, that's a fine. Mrs. Nova, oh. I assume. Mi- Ms. Nova these days. Oh, apologies, Ms. Nova. <clears throat> I'm going to take us out one last time. Oh, oh, I miss Until them already. <laughs> so here we are, the end of the first season. From dolphin sex, to gay by Ken dolls, to haunted hotels and suicide songs, we've had a wild ride talking about these ridiculous topics, and I'd like to think that we've learned some lessons along the way. Lessons like, don't bathe in ketchup, because Emma wants to eat you. Don't blindly follow someone on the internet, because they say they're smarter than you. Don't sit near as the waiter carrying the tomato sauce. And of course, never send lewd photographs to your fellow Catholics. And all these lessons are very important, but I think the most important one is for you all to be kind to one another. Emma and I have disagreed many times on this podcast, and not once did it turn nasty. We just said our piece and carried on, the way discourse should work, and the way it needs to work if we're going to make it further as a species. And with that thought of making it further as a species in mind, I have to tell you something very important now. When I swapped bodies with my future self, all the way back in episode 5, I inherited what you would call memories of a future I have not yet lived. I was then aware of the many coming tragedies that would eventually befall our race, and I was prepared for it. With each topic of this podcast, you have been given the tools you need to fend off all challenges coming your way for the next 50 years. Our Christmas special 
showed you a good example of two hopelessly drunk hosts still being able to speak at length on complex and intriguing topics. This will serve you well during the alcohol evaporation of 2028. (laughs) That is, when the natural alcohol escapes from beneath the forest and forms an intoxicating cloud that makes the entire race drunk for two years. You will learn to maintain your lives to a high intellectual, if slightly slurred standard, through observing our dynamics. Our mass episode will teach you to fend off the rise of the armies of Christ in 2032, when former QAnon subscribers are radicalised into angel-wing-wearing, machine-gun-sporting soldiers. Here's a hint. If you knock over the ones with the crucifixes, it prevents the orange-haired infantry from progressing any further. In toxic positivity, you will have, hopefully, learned how to combat the optimist insurgency of 2036. Just as we will have figured out how to replenish our ozone layer, Waves and waves of optimist scum will appear to tell us we don't need to replenish it. That it will all be fine, and that we like seeing polar bears swimming. Don't listen to them. You can beat them. Just use your cynicism and insults. They'll break. They'll cry. They always do. In our episode on masculinity, we've shown you how to deal with men. There's no specific event here, but it's an ongoing problem for the next few years. Surprisingly enough, the Aliens podcast may be the most informative of all of them. Believe it or not, one day, everybody will have a Johnny. But I hope you've learned from Emma's story to be nice to Johnny. Not least for the sake of decency, but because he's been secretly planting eggs around the house and you have only a few hours before you're completely outnumbered. With cannibalism, you've seen Emma reveal their true self to you all. I don't know how much good it will do, but it hopefully will prevent you from electing her the leader of Forbidden Metopia after the Veganians have fallen. <laughs> Romance didn't teach you much, and it wasn't supposed to. Only that there are some things that need to live on to make life worth living, and love, even between a slave boy and his whip-bearer, is one of those few things. Ghosts will come to aid you in that it gives you the first announcement of the impending arrival of the dimensional waffle monsters. To be fair, these are not a particularly difficult foe to vanquish in that... They are edible. I will say this, though. You do best to avoid the extinction of the maple tree in 2056, as the combat will be particularly bland without it. Curses will, of course, come to aid you, and that wiccanry is becoming more and more prevalent in our younger generations, and you need to protect your kidneys. Conspiracies will hopefully have taught you not to believe everything you read, but to be more practical in how you approach your problems together. It's not always JFK Jr. Sometimes, it's just greedy rich people. And finally, from this final episode, we'll have taught you the most important thing of all, that you can truly only believe in less than half of the things that we say. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Oh, and don't have sex with dolphins. Unless you're a dolphin, then go wild. You've earned it. Goodbye. Bye. I love you. I miss you already, etc. I'll I'll be back in like a week. Epstein didn't kill himself. Bye. Damn right.